0: Panic has gripped the wedding guests, trapped within the grand chapel of Tereth Palace. Those not screaming in agony are screaming in terror, hammering at the great sealed doors, fearful of the same fate befalling them. On the dais, House Tereth guards, swords drawn, form a tight protective circle around the Duke, Mina and the High Devotant of Ankra, though they seem no less terrified than anyone else. More so, in fact, when the High Devotant begins to wretch and cough, Black veins spread up his neck, oil dribbles from between his lips and leaks from his eyes. He lets out a piercing shriek, clutching at his head, and then his skull explodes, showering all nearby in brain matter and machine oil. He is not alone. Melting flesh and exploding heads turn what had been a serene place of worship and celebration into a charnel house. Those lucky enough not to have drunk the wine find themselves showered in gore and slipping in pooling blood. Those at the doors are now at serious risk from being crushed by those pressing in from behind. And yet that is not the worst of it. Valerian's gut tightens as across the room he sees more than one of the afflicted grow suddenly still, freezing in place, their eyes rolling back in their heads. Black oil swims over the whites of their eyes, the skin grows grey and drawn, and then As one, they begin to move. Their movements are jerky, stumbling, and clumsy, but they move with singular purpose towards the unafflicted. One, some aging countess that Valerian half recognizes, turns and grips the shoulder of the elderly gentleman who had been desperately trying to help her. Oh, Serafina, praised Seven, I thought I'd lost you, he gushes in relief. And then he screams shrilly as his wife's teeth sink into his cheek, her questing fingers probing for his eyes, and he goes down thrashing beneath her. Valerian can only watch in abject horror as he flails wildly, and then goes still, and the screams redouble in intensity. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Crater and Trace fled the unseen, and her cutthroats in a cat-and-mouse chase over the roofs of the docks, only to see the region erupt into civil war. The Spider and Sallow crept through the ravaged streets of the Mercers' Quarter, managing to avoid the full-scale war raging there, but finding their quarry's stronghold lethally protected. And at the wedding, things were more desperate still. Not only was Tatters buried under a pile of angry soldiers, but Valerian's heartfelt appeal for aid was interrupted by the machine cult in truly terrifying fashion. If there's one benefit to be said of the world going to head-bursting, oil-zombie-filled hell, it's that it really helps take folks' minds off their jobs. Case in point... Tatters is pretty much the last thing the one remaining soldier pinning her to the ground is thinking of, and quite rightly, he's more focused on how he's going to get out of this killing ground without some grey-skinned freak ripping his throat out, which gives Tatters the opportunity she needs. Careful to keep herself passive and unresisting, she draws in two shaky breaths and closes her eyes. Panic subsides and focus returns. A small part of her rages against that treacherous demon-bastard Satara, but a greater part of her recognises the futility of that rage. Castigating a demon for being treacherous is like bemoaning the temerity of a Dr. Quack or railing against the darkness of the night. No, the fault lies squarely with her. She placed her trust in the untrustworthy. Again, what does that say about her? Time for navel-gazing later, she chides herself. At least, hopefully. The demon has offered her a path out of here that she'll be damned if she's going to pay whatever a price it cares to name. Quite literally, in fact. No, she has made that mistake enough times. She can do this without the demon. She is not without powers of her own, after all. Powers that she has pulled from the demon dimensions by sheer force of her own will. She gazes up at the arcaded gallery above the nave aisle, reaches inside and visualises her path. She is swallowed by a flash of purple, and the guard finds himself holding nothing but her empty manacles. She reappears, far above the chaos and the confusion, looking down on a scene straight out of hell. Those guests not dead or dying in agony are now falling prey to the converted. It's a slaughterhouse. It occurs to her that one extremely effective way of preventing a union between houses Montessario and Tabreath, and of thwarting the plans of the Unseen would be to just walk away, and let the Duke and his bride-to-be die down there. The thought holds her motionless for a moment, and she fancies she can feel Satara's frisson of pleasure at her moral quandary. Perhaps it is nothing more than a desire to deny the demon satisfaction that decides her course. Perhaps it is the knowledge that she would be abandoning Valerian to his doom if she bailed. Whatever the reason... Her lip curls in frustration, and she turns her attention to rescue. There must be some way to free those poor fools from this death trap. There simply must be. But for all her ingenuity and skill, all she can see is terror and death. Hell, meet handcart. Here we go again. I began the session with my scene start oracle asking if the scene began as expected. Yes, but there's a blasted skull and a cowled face, the image oracle informed me. That sounded to me like the high devotant had bought the farm. Then, because of what happened to Flint when he drank the machine oil, I asked if any of these victims were getting converted. Given the oil had been diluted in wine, I gave that unlikely odds, but I got a yes, but response. I decided that the but in this case meant that, because they were not inside the heart of the machine, they were being transformed, but not into creatures like Flint or those machined cult priestesses. Oil zombies seemed to fit the bill here. All this window dressing was all well and good, but what I really needed was to get moving on my progress clock. I was still only at one tick out of ten on Stop the Wedding and Recover Mina, so it was time for my PCs to roll some actions. First, Tatters succeeded on an attune check to teleport out of trouble. But given the impact on the end goal, I ruled that the effect of this was limited, so just one extra tick on the clock. Then I had Tatters take a survey action to find a way to rescue the survivors, which ended in failure. The consequence for this failure, rolled randomly on my consequence oracle, was to mark a clock segment. As I had no existing danger clock, I created a new one. Massacre of the Innocents, and marked off two sections out of six. I'm not sure what will happen if that clock does reach six, other than the elimination of the upper echelons of Kairos nobility, but I'm sure it's going to be nothing good. A brief word on Mina and her crew. As Tatters and Valerian are my protagonists in this Blades in the Dark season, I've given them all the agency here, and I'm keeping all the focus firmly on them. Mina is very much an NPC for this game, and unless my AI GM tells me otherwise, she's going to remain in the backseat. Tata's plans seem to have hit a bit of a dead end, so I think it's time to switch to Valerian. Things are bound to go better for him, right? Well, let's see. Valerian tries not to scream as he sees another soldier go down beneath those creatures. Though there is so much screaming going on, he's not entirely sure whether he succeeds or not. On the plus side, the soldiers that have been closing in on him are otherwise occupied now. Whether struggling with oil zombies or struggling to avoid being trampled by the panked mob, the House to Wrath Honor Guard have their hands full. And that gives Valerian the opportunity he needs. True, he's never been much of a fighter, but then he's never really needed to be. His gifts lie in communication not conflict. And it's communication that is going to get them out of this mess. Never waste a good crisis, as his mentor Ogilvy of Ogilvy, Willis and Pratt had always told him. And that advice is as true in legal matters as it is in wedding parties, crashed by blood-hungry techno-zombies. At least, he hopes it is. He leaps over toppled pews, skirts a pair of zombies feasting on a baronet, and reaches the tight circle of soldiers surrounding Mina and company. ''Miss Montessario,'' he calls out, ''we need to work together. This is a common enemy. Help me to help you.'' That plea had sounded much more compelling in his head, but now he comes to say it out loud, he has to confess it does lack a certain something. And the Duke of House Toreth appears inclined to agree. ''Kill that terrorist!'' he bellows. ''This is all his doing!'' Soldiers advance, all sharp swords and deadly competence and menacing expressions. Valerian backpedals desperately, hands raised. Oh shit, he squeaks. Now hold on just a minute, I had nothing to do with this. Well, Whatever the hell this is. But his powers of persuasion seem to have utterly deserted him. And as if that isn't bad enough, his backward trajectory is brought to a sudden halt as he reverses into a fleshy wall he turns to see a portly princess in a rather ill-judged puffy pink number, her face caked in blood. Her jaw opens an alarming extent, black oil and blood dribbling down her chin as she lunges at him like he was the last cake in the buffet. Oh shit! Valerian scrambles away, back towards the advancing steel. That is when Viscount Pomeroy of Fellock, clutching his head and shrieking, stumbles drunkenly between them, He crashes into a ceremonial brazier, scattering burning coals in all directions just as his head explodes in a shower of black oil and gore. The oil ignited by the coals sprays over everything nearby – tapestries, wedding guests, soldiers and oil zombies. And those latter, it transpires, prove rather flammable. Valerian, aghast, bats frantically at his burning clothes. Oh shit. What's better than flesh-hungry zombies powered by the oil blood of a machine god? Flaming flesh-hungry zombies powered by the oil blood of a machine god, obviously. With Tatter's momentum having ground to a halt, I switched my focus to Valerian and gave him a sway check to persuade Mina to join forces. Given what was going on around Valerian, this cheque was going to be against a desperate position, so I really didn't want to fail. In order to improve my chances and preserve a little bit of stress, I took a devil's bargain and that turned out to be a very bad idea. Because Valerian ended up with a flat failure. The consequence he rolled was things take longer, lose an opportunity, a new approach is needed to try again given the position was desperate, I interpreted that as harshly as I could. Not only was the Duke having none of it, but now Valerian was stuck between a rock and a hard place. The brief aside, it occurred to me after I wrote it that Tristan's response here was pretty strong. Perhaps too strong? Say, like the sort of response a member of the Unseen might give, if they were trying to get rid of someone attempting to bring their devious scheme to light? That's an intriguing possibility, But really, when you're dealing with an infiltrating group of evil shapeshifters, anyone might be the enemy, and paranoia comes baked in as standard. Anyhow, that Devil's Bargain. I'd rolled Unexpected Complication on my Devil's Bargain Oracle, and because I couldn't think of anything obvious offhand, I rolled again on the Picture Oracle. That gave me a poisonous toadstool and a sort of exploding circle shape. Given the context, the poison seemed like it had to be tied to the machine oil somehow. The exploding circle was a little less obvious though. I stared at it for a while, trying to dredge up associations, and what should bubble up to the surface but an album cover from 1983, Def Leppard's classic rocker Pyromania. It's a record I haven't listened to or even thought of in probably over 30 years, It's really weird what image association can dredge up from the hidden, dusty corners of your subconscious. Needless to say, the rest of this episode was created to a Pyromania soundtrack. So, good news for me, slightly less so for poor old Valerian. Things were looking bad for him before, and now, just to rub salt in the wound, everyone is trying to kill him, and the room has been set on fire. Way to go, Valerian. In hindsight this might have been a good opportunity to take a resistance roll to prevent the consequence. In fact, looking at how several rolls have played out in this episode so far, I could probably have made better use of resistance rolls all along. I tend to forget that I have that option, or sometimes I'm unwilling to risk burning a lot of stress by using it, but failing to use resistance rolls has landed my party in a fair amount of trouble so far. Something to consider as the scene continues. I've decided to keep this episode solely focused on Tatters, Valerian and the Black Wedding, partly because I want to move this storyline along, and partly from a morbid sense of curiosity to find out just how much worse things can get for my heroes. Let's find out, shall we? Knuckles white, Tatters grips the carved stone balustrade in furious despair. A scene of utter carnage plays out below, and the addition of oil zombies going up like half-human torches is doing nothing to ease matters. Not least because being on fire doesn't seem to be impeding the zombies in the least. They're now deadlier than ever. The chapel, already at capacity for blood and panic, is now filling with flames and choking smoke, and there is nothing she can do about it. Or is there... With an effort, she sets aside the human tragedy of the scene and observes events dispassionately. And in so doing, she realises that what she had taken for random, chaotic savagery is actually a pattern. The movements of the zombies are structured, coordinated, systematic. They are moving with a unified purpose. There is some commanding intelligence at work here, imposing its will on a sort of subjugated hive mind and what one mind can control, another can subvert. Of course, she had studied the sample of oil that Valerian and her trace had brought back from their trip to the heart of the machine. It had proved a fascinating material, imbued with properties and a form of arcane power that Tatters had never encountered before. It responded in unpredictable ways and with a remarkable sensitivity to arcane fields. But the one thing she had not considered was that it might prove susceptible to mental influence. She explores that possibility now, drawing on every ounce of her reserves. Trails of purple light begin to swirl around her, branching and twisting as she extends her consciousness outwards and towards the rampaging creatures below. Contact. The wedding chapel is gone. Her mind is momentarily engulfed, submerged beneath an endless plain of ink-black liquid... She stabilizes, surfaces, lets her senses spread out into the black. She can feel them. Multiple points of mindless potential, physical forms, ready to perform the bidding of a controlling consciousness. And she senses something more. A cold, malignant presence, deep beneath the surface, spreading silver tendrils of power out and into the zombie nodes. An alien metallic intelligence, possessed of a mind and a form of arcane power unlike anything she has previously encountered. But she knows, instinctively, that although this machine magic is different in form and feel to the magic of the demon dimensions, at its root it obeys the same rules. It responds to will. Ignoring the half-heard screams of the dying, seemingly heard by another person entirely, she steals herself and grips her demon bane charm. She has imbued this charm with power, and she calls on that power now, channeling all of her resolve through it. She descends into the black, geometric lines and arcs of purple arcanicity spreading remorselessly outwards. They burst through the silver tendrils, shattering them utterly. She is dimly aware of the sense of shock and fury from that other mind, but she ignores it. Instead, she seizes control of her minions, feeling the oil in their blood respond to her mental commands they freeze in place. She forces her awareness to sit between the two realities, overlaying the cool simplicity of the psychic battlefield with the chaos of the chapel. She can see her minions standing ready, motionless, as survivors scramble desperately away from them. There is a moment of comparative peace, horrifying calm at the eye of the storm. Clear the doors, she bellows, and with a mental command, she sends her blazing army of oil zombies racing towards the tall double doors at the far end of the chapel. Even as she does so, she can feel that machine mind recover and retaliate. She grits her teeth as its will hammers into her own, battering at her with wave after wave of psychic force. Her grip falters but holds. Channeling more and more arcane power through her charm, she fortifies her mind against the onslaught and endures. The zombies, all ablaze, imbued with superhuman strength and running at full speed, smash bodily into the doors. The resulting explosive impact is sufficient to smash the doors from their hinges and destroy nearly all of the zombies. Tata sags, her mind returning fully to her body. And it is only then that she realises the demon vein charm, originally created to limit the influence of demons upon her, has melted to molten slag in her hand. Exhaustion and pain hit her like twin pile drivers, but somehow she keeps her feet. And into the stunned silence below, she calls out, RUN! RUN, YOU IDIOTS! Well, isn't Tatters the monumental badass? That whole scene was the result of just two action rolls, and their consequences. First, Tatters made an attune roll from a desperate position to penetrate the oil zombie consciousness, and got a success, with the consequence that more of the hoi polloi got eaten, burned, or trampled. Massacre of the Innocent clock goes up to four out of six. Then, she made a command roll, again from a desperate position, to command the zombies to burn down the door this really had to work, and so I threw everything at the roll. Despite having burned a lot of stress already, I pushed this roll for two more, and, unwilling to learn from previous mistakes, I made another devil's bargain. The result of my action roll, praise be to the dice gods, was a straight success. My mission clock was now at 6 out of 10. I then resolved the devil's bargain, and I got sacrifice, coin, or an item, and here I chose to lose the Demonbane charm from Tata's character sheet. It seemed to me that the loss of this protective talisman could have interesting repercussions down the line, and so it seemed like a perfect devil's bargain that a GM might offer. You can gain an extra dice to this roll, but you'll have to lose your charm, which might spell trouble if you need to treat with demons anytime soon. Everything else in the scene was wordsmithing and window dressing, simply following the logic of the scene and the outcome of the roles to define the narrative reality. By complete coincidence, much of the scene was composed of the backing music of X-Ray Visions from the 2015 album Psychic Warfare by Clutch. To quote the chorus, telekinetic dynamite, psychic warfare is real. So it looks like Tatters has achieved the impossible and sprung our plucky gang from their deadly death trap. I guess it's time to see Valerian pluck defeat from the jaws of victory. Valerian is flat on his ass, begging for mercy when the zombies go still. He wonders, just for a moment, if his powers of persuasion have returned, redoubled. Then Tatters, from an archway high above the chapel, calls for the doors to be cleared, and the oil zombies are off and running. There is a detonation like the shattering of the world, and Valerian feels the heat of the fireball wash over him as the doors are blown out. He's on his feet and moving before half the stunned survivors have had a chance to process what has just happened. He may be an abject coward when faced with the promise of violent death, but never let it be said he can't run with the best of them when a chance to save his sorry skin presents itself. And yet, it's not towards the doors that he runs... Using the traumatised remnants of the crowd for cover, he ducks out of sight between two pews, settling to work on the fallen soldier he finds there. When he stands, moments later, he is kitted out in Helm, Tabard, Sword and Shield. It's a disguise that will not survive even the most cursory of inspections, but given the current state of events, he's banking that folks are not going to be too big on inspecting right now. He spots the units surrounding Mina and the Duke, and tracking their movements, he is able to tuck in behind them unnoticed. Mina is barely two feet away from him. It occurs to him, now perhaps a little too late, that his ingenious plan to get close into his target lacked one important element, namely what the hell to do next. He's just pondering that little conundrum when a more pressing concern presents itself. They are moving along, at a lively jog, towards the inferno, raging in the flaming remnants of the doorway, shouldering aside luminaries, grandees and glitterati, when a figure emerges from the flames. It is tall and slender, clad in flowing robes and seemingly impervious to the fire. Flickering reflections of yellow and orange crawl over chromium skin as it advances. The survivors form a desperate huddle behind the knot of soldiers, eyes bulging in terror this fresh threat the steel skinned figure raises an arm and speaks there is not a shred of humanity in its voice it is the divine will of the machine that this place be your tomb if you will not fall to my servants then you will fall at my own hand Valerian's stomach lurches and it's not because he's suddenly facing violent death again and distorted though it is He recognises that voice. And he recognises that face. It's Flint. Out of the frying pan. Well, we all knew that an orderly evacuation ushered along by fire marshals in high-vis jackets was going to be a pretty unlikely outcome. And sure enough, the wheels that Tatters had somehow managed to glue back on have come straight back off again. This scene really did give me pause regarding use of a resistance roll to counter a major consequence. But a couple of things dissuaded me from taking that route. Let me rewind a bit to explain. Given the state of play at the start of that scene, I decided to give Valerian a prowl action, using the confusion to evade the soldiers and get in close demeanour. I pushed the roll and succeeded, but with a consequence. And that consequence was a new obstacle or threat. And the picture oracle gave me a raging fire and a shining skull, and all of a sudden, I knew who the consciousness was that had been controlling the oil zombies. This was the point at which I toyed with using a resistance roll, but in the end, there were two things that stayed my hand. Firstly, Valeria was already at 7 out of 9 stress. Even if I could come up with a suitable narrative justification to prevent the consequence, the act of resisting it was highly likely to knock Valerian out of the mission. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but given that the mission clock is still only at 7 out of 10, that would leave a huge amount of heavy lifting to pile onto Tatters' already highly stressed shoulders. The other reason had nothing to do with mechanics. This story development felt just satisfying. And right, Flint was back, the Puppet Master stood revealed, and the stage was set for an epic final showdown. Bring it on. And so that is where we'll leave it. The quest to extract Mina stands upon the edge of a knife, and we'll have to wait and see which way things fall. Because first, we need to take a visit to the Mercer's Quarter to see how Spider and Sallow are faring, and then take a trip to the docks. Until next time... You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com, where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. i also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.